This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community in Baltimore, right here, and also broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7 FM, and across the land at SteinerShow.org and SoundBitesRadio.org. Today we uh, preview Jazz for Water, which is a benefit for the advocacy work of Gunpowder River Keepers, protecting the river, the Gunpowder River, its small streams and wetlands. Uh, it's got farm-to-table food will be happening and performance by uh, Carl Flibiak, uh, jazz guitarist, and our friend Robert Shaheed on the drums. Uh, we'll talk about all that and just a little later in this episode. But one of our primary themes we've been exploring over the past years here on Soundbites is how important African-American farmers and the urban farming movement is in terms of leading a major systemic change in our food system from the bottom up and changing things around in communities. We're excited to continue that conversation today by highlighting the work of the Black Urban Growers Network. The annual Black Urban Growers Conference starts today in Oakland, California, and we are inspired by the amazing schedule of events and the people taking part, which you can see at blackurbangrowers.org. And so we set out to bring together local black Baltimore farmers with black farmers from the West Coast to talk about their work and roles in transforming our society and our food system and reclaiming power. In studio with us is Walker Marsh, who is founder and owner of The Flower Factory, and Sasha Jones, who is a food justice consultant with the Park Heights Community Health Alliance and also manages the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights right here in Baltimore, and Kanok Yisrael, who is a black urban farmer from Sacramento, California, founder with his wife Judith of the Yisrael Farm Family Urban Farm, founding member of the Sanko Food Buying Club, and advocate for the expansion of urban farming throughout Sacramento. And Carissa Lewis, who is a black radical farmer from Oakland, California, co-founder of the Full Harvest Urban Farm, a quarter-acre farm in East Oakland, and manager at People's Groceries, a food justice community organization based in West Oakland, and an active member of the Black Bay Area Black Lives Matter chapter and the Blackout Collective. So all welcome. Good to have you here. So let's, let me take it um, backwards for a minute in terms of for us here in Baltimore and take us to the West Coast. And, and if we could start, Carissa, just a bit of history. Um, about the history of who you are, what you've done, and what the Full full Harvest Urban Farm is, where it came from, how long it's been here. Yeah, so we were founded in 2012 and kind of stumbled on the urban farming. So we have a video out that's actually, um, it's called the um, Gateway Plant. Um, And so my husband and I got into urban farming because we were really interested in cultivating cannabis. Um, and so we started cultivating cannabis and realized that um, because we were monocropping just cannabis, our plants were susceptible to more pests and um, disease. So we started to look into indigenous farming methods um, and started to learn about companion planting um, and started to grow tomatoes and vegetables um, And so through that process, really got politicized around food justice um, and started to grow a whole bunch of stuff. So currently we have a quarter acre farm that includes a dispersed orchard with over 20 fruit trees, uh, vegetable plots, chickens, goats, pigs, rabbits, all for meat and, you know, egg or, or milk consumption. So, yeah, that's that's what we're doing. And that's kind of how we got our start. my husband is uh, also a co-founder and co-director of the farm, um, and it's been really interesting just stepping into this kind of um, by happenstance um, and really finding that it's in our bones and it's in our blood to work the land, and so it's been a beautiful reclamation for us. Yeah, I want to explore some of that even deeper when we come back to this. And, 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 and Kanok, what's the history of the Israel family urban farm? It started about maybe 2008, 2009, where the idea of, of trying to grow food started for me. But I just want to take you back just a little further because right. uh, kind of where I decided to start growing food is based on um, some things that happened in my family, which many people can connect to. So my mom had breast cancer. My dad had kidney cancer. And so because of those things happening, um, I really started to become concerned about my own health. And, you, you know, you hear the thing that says, you know, if your parents have cancer, then you're more susceptible to get cancer, those types of things. I heard those from my doctor. So then I started to change my diet to a plant-based diet, 
And on that road, of course, learning about organic and non-GMO and those types of things, started to realize it was very expensive to be able to do that. And, you know, even though I was working in the computer field and, you know, back in, in you know, about 2007, 2008, um, I was able to do it, but it was very, very expensive. So for me, growing food was more of an economical decision to say, how can I reduce um, my food, you know, my food bill every single month? So that's kind of how I started. And then it kind of blossomed from there later on down the road as I realized that not only am I providing food for my, for, for my uh, you know, for my family in the backyard, but then there's this whole other thing called, you know, food deserts and what have you. And as I started to learn about the politics behind food, especially in the neighborhood where I am, where littered with, you know, convenience stores and things of that nature, then it became something for me that I could look at as a way to connect with the community and be able to, you know, do some good with my time on the planet. So that's kind of how I got into it. So, so just for, for you all and our listeners to refresh their memories, let me just very quickly, Sasha, we have this Park Heights Garden, that the Afia Community Garden that you, that you manage here in the city mm-hmm. and run. And I think it's important just to just lay that out again, just very quickly what that is. And just from my own experience, I think it's, it's a beautiful, unique program because it's actually where working class black families and poor people can actually get hold of food, which is just an amazing revolutionary explosion. Mm-hmm. So we, uh, I, I manage the Afia Community Teaching Garden here in Park Heights um, in Baltimore, and we're currently on three growing sites, so I think we keep growing every time I come on, Mark. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, so our first site, I think we're, we're twins, Carissa. Our first site is a quarter acre, and then we just picked up a, another uh, site that's an acre and a half, and then we have a small, teeny, teeny little tenth of an acre place where we put root crops um, different times in the season. And what we do with all that food we grow is we have uh, what's called the Growing Food Together CSA. So it's all in the name. The idea is to uh, enhance community as well as enhance access to um, nutritious, organically grown vegetables in um, in Baltimore for um, the citizens, both of Park Heights. But we open it up to, um, to anyone in Baltimore. Um, we have a sweat equity CSA. So that means that if you are able to work, if you're able to do anything that can support what we're doing, we will give you that credit in vegetables. So we have both on-farm and off-farm sweat equity tasks. So some of our members, we have a member who donated bees. We have a member that comes in and makes phone calls for volunteer days. Um, and then we have uh, several volunteer days throughout the week where people can come and do their hours um, and pick up their vegetables um, twice a week um, at our site. So it's been pretty successful. If you And if you don't want to get your hands hands in the soil or do anything at all you can pay um and it's a very nominal fee um and again they're, they're probably the most affordable organic vegetables around that's yeah, really nominal like 10 15 a month <laughs> yeah so right? uh through our partner uh through our membership with the farm alliance we are able to offer um ten dollar discounts um per month on csa so our cheapest share is twenty dollars without that discount um and if you have snap or wick we can give you an additional ten dollars so you can get um fruits and vegetables for your family at ten dollars a month um um, and that's every for a 22-week season. Um, I kind of am like everybody else, kind of like just fell into farming. Uh, recently started about three, four years ago, and I uh, started at a local urban farm called Real Food Farm, and uh, was just, when I first, well, before I even started working, you know, I was very hesitant to even start the work because, you know, I just felt like a lot of black people do. It's like, you know, I'm not going to go back to farming because that's what my ancestors did that's what slaves did and it's like the worst thing to ever think because that's not the truth but when I went out there and actually started to do the work and started working with the land it just just felt right you know it just felt good it just it was what I wanted to do so once I started there I was able to uh, enter in a comp- enter into a competition a citywide competition that was turning uh, vacant lots into green spaces and I presented the idea of starting a flower farm on a half acre lot here in Baltimore City and I was able to actually win the competition. I was awarded $63,000 to start this farm and uh, it's just like, it's been very exciting. It's been a very big learning experience for myself. I'm still in the process of constructing the farm but it's, it's coming along and I, I'm just really excited about it. So I, I really want to explore what the power of what's growing here. I mean I think that there's an explosion happening that often 
the parts of the country don't know about it, and the media doesn't cover it inextensively, mm-hmm. uh, Carissa. But I'm feeling like this is there's, there's, there's an explosion of of power in the earth with black farmers in America that 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 is beginning. That has a real potential to change things um, in ways that maybe other things don't. Just in terms of the the power of controlling community and controlling food, and 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 creating community and and, and an economy. Yeah, well, it's, I think that there's something really beautiful about um, being able to provide your most basic need. And I think um, historically that has been stolen from us, right? So to be able to reclaim that, um, I think, has been really powerful for me and the folks that I roll with. Um, I also think that because of, at least in the Bay Area, there is an extreme, extreme um, wave of gentrification that's deeply coupled to um, food justice, which is super interesting. Um, but folks who are gentrifying our communities are also engaging in food justice work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's creating a space in where folks need to be held accountable for that relationship, and folks are ready to throw down around gentrification and are seeing the link. So I think that that has had an impact. Um on how we how we do the work here and how folks, you know, I know that gentrification has been impacting folks all across the, the country and looking very similar. So I think that that has to do with some of the energy that's happening now. And, and uh, Kanoka, I was really reading about you. One of the things you're trying to do in Sacramento is, is, is take it beyond what you started and, and create like this whole urban farm system in Sacramento. Yes. Um, yeah, and so right around the time, like I said, I started to find out about the food deserts and everything. That's when I decided, you know, I wanted to do more as opposed to, you know, just doing something in my backyard, but to go out into the community. So that's when we decided to actually become a, you know, like a, a farm and start to, you know, organize ourselves. And so that's when we came up with the slogan of transforming the hood for good, um, because that's exactly what food does, because really... We start to talk about food a lot, and we do grow food, and people eat food, but really what you're talking about is you're talking about a change in culture. And because our culture has been distorted in so many ways throughout history, um, going back to the soil, going back to growing your own food, not only does something for the material part of it, which is, you know, creating economic viability and jobs and, you know, land control and land ownership in the community, it also does something to the person, too, to, you know, solve some of the other social problems that go on in our community. So I see it as a two-fold process. So that, that, well, talk about what, you th- what, what ideas are for a strategy to make this kind of explode, how this begins to happen. Go ahead. I was just going to say the first thing that you have to do is you have to start to talk about economics because, you know, most of the models that we see of urban farms are their nonprofit organizations. And so as a nonprofit, you're, you know, use a lot of volunteers and what have you. Whereas, you know, what we've done in Sacramento with the Sacramento Urban Ag Coalition and, and passing the Urban Ag Ordinance now says that you can have, grow food at your house and you can sell it in your front yard if necessary. So for our farm, which is right in the middle of the city, our half acre that we have, we can now grow as much food as we can here on our half acre and then be able to have a farm stand right on the property which, you know, of course, coupled with, you know, being able to offer cow fresh and things of that nature, mm-hmm. um, you can serve the community directly as opposed to, you know, these other levels that are in play. And it reduces the price, so it's then affordable, organically grown food. That's really cool. I, I think it's a marriage of both nonprofit farming and for-profit farming that will help it to explode. Because um, I'm seeing an explosion in my own neighborhood um, just the amount of people who are buying into what we do and just stop by and say, oh, you know, I saw someone else with a bag of produce. Where can I get some? You know, and I still have people joining the CSA right now, and we only have three weeks left. And, I'm, you know, I'll let them. If, like, if you live in our neighborhood, you can try it out, join again next year, and you get the full 22 weeks. Um, but I think there is a, is a marriage that has been happening sort of informally between nonprofit farming and, you know, I do work for a nonprofit organization. Um, and I commune with for-profit farmers. So I see both both of the sides. And I think uh, nonprofit farming, like the where I approached 
this work, I was kind of like you, Kanoke, um, there were some health issues in my family, um, and I started to look, you know, turn the eye in. You know, if this is happening to everybody else around me, it's not too far from me. Um, you know, and then when I was in college, I started having all these digestive issues, and I'm like, okay, no one knows what's happening with me. Let me try mm-hmm. to, you know, heal myself. So I started eating fresh foods, um, you know, changed my diet and, and started being more introspective about, you know, what affected me and what didn't. And, there, you know, there was, that was a whole journey. But I had this interest in agriculture, and I went so far as to research it for my, like, senior thesis project. I'm like, (laughs) you know, I was a development student. I'm just like, okay, how can we use sustainable ag to develop communities? Um, You know, how can we get it to explode? That was the, Mm -hmm. the whole question. And I have been able to learn the process through through a mixture of for-profit and nonprofit farms. But the nonprofit farm is helping to train folks on how to do this. It's it's a very mm-hmm. low risk way of learning how to return to your culture, as we've kind of been talking about. Like, you know, it's no secret that we as black and brown people have been, you know, the the leaders in the food movement, whether we have the agency mm-hmm. to recognize that it or not. Um, you know, so a lot of us, a lot of our, the younger generation has turned away and we're not really that interested in doing it. But working on a nonprofit farm helps you to get in, you know, get your AmeriCorps stipend or, you know, whatever, <laughs> whatever you can get to make sure that it's economically sustainable for you to learn this work, um, you know, and also time, you know. You know, that you have to have enough time that you can do it, that you don't have to work a 40-hour-week job and then come home and teach yourself how to grow food. You, We can use nonprofits that are interested in food justice. Um, these, you know, organizations that are coming in, either coming into the community or have already been there, using, using them to be able to learn how to teach it to our children. And then if you want to transition out, you know, mm-hmm. going the for-profit route. Here in Baltimore, we have uh, pretty much the same opportunity to be able to grow food on your own property and sell it. Mm-hmm. Um you know, so Baltimore has some really great policies on the books um, for growing um, food and chickens and goats, and we can have all that stuff here. And so I'm learning right now, you know, I've learned through the Beginner Farmer Trainer Program. I've learned through where I work now at Park Heights Community Health Alliance, just what it takes to grow a lot of food for a lot of people. Um, you know, and if later on down the line, you know, I want to branch off into the for-profit world, um, that'll be my, that's an opportunity for me. But then while I'm here right now, I have so many people in the community either connected through our CSA or who just show up, you know, and they're like, mm-hmm. you are growing food. I want some. How can we do it? <laughs> and, and to me, Chris, this, and, and Chris, this in some ways is it's, a, it's business, but this is also, for want of a better term, a revolutionary act. Yes, definitely. So, I mean, talk about how you feel about that in Oakland, because you're in Oakland in many ways. People think it was one of the ground zeros of that. So talk a bit about what, how, how that fits in. Yeah, so I think the way we engage our work is revolutionary in a few ways. One, we're intentional about trying to teach um, formerly incarcerated folks how to cultivate cannabis. In the state of California, cannabis cultivation is legal. Um for medical purposes, and black folks are being locked out of that industry. Right, right, right. Industries, right? So that's a very political and radical act. We consider it a direct action. Um, So we think that that's a way that we're incorporating some radical thinking. Um, And then just knowing that, you know, I've had many conversations with white folks who are like, yeah, black folks just don't eat organic food because they don't know what organic food is. You know, and I've had to push back and say all food was organic until the introduction of pesticides, which we didn't introduce, right? So, you know, a reclamation of our own wisdom is necessary and is also radical. And to deeply care for our bodies is also considered radical, right? To, you know, so Audre Lorde says that the self-care is a revolutionary act, right? So to do that in a way that is not only caring for ourselves, but deeply caring for our broader community um, of black folks, I think is really powerful um, and has been a way for us to connect with other food justice organizations um, in the Bay Area and other folks who are invested in shifting the way that they engage food. So do do you all think that that this movement that's growing, and 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 I saw some photos of both your farm, uh, Canoke, and, and your farm, Carissa, and um, uh, and 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 I love the pictures in your farm, Carissa, of the 
of the goats and chickens kind of taking over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think you once said that, that, that uh, if I got this interview right when I watched you at some TV spot that, a little bit ago when we were thinking of having you come on, that you, you said you let the, the, the goats and chickens roam free uh, because your husband, who was formerly incarcerated, ought to know what it means when you locked up and what that does to your he- heart and soul when you get locked up so we're not locking up the animals. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> and, we've been, and we've been to other people's spots, and our chickens are healthy and happy. They've naturalized, so all of our chickens sleep in the trees um, mm. so we don't have to worry about raccoons because our chickens mm. are um, beastier than them. So it's been, it's been really <laughs> beautiful seeing that that is what nature needs and being able to make it political as well. So uh, do you do we think collectively that this movement could actually grow to, to, to feed people, really feed people, and really change the paradigm and put people to work? So working and farming and making a living as well as feeding a community. Um, it feels like that's what this kind of, this, this turning the soil hmm. from a lot of young black folks in this country is doing. Where do you think it can take us? Uh, I mean, for me, because, you know, you've asked that question, I think, like maybe. I ask that the, question all the time. Yeah, like I ask that question all the time. to right. open your lid and to really, uh, you know, just go off and see where it is. And I was thinking about that as I was walking up here. And I really see it going just, just very far because, uh, like we all have said, like the farming has a great way to bring us all together. And we don't even have to be even just farming or out there like cultiv- like you physically out there cultivating the land. Just being out there and in that environment changes people. And I think that, like, you know, because before I've said I could see a change in the landscape, but I can also – I can really – I think the the true impact is changing the people. I think we – with farming, it has a great ability to really change people and, and allow people to see what's really going on. And when you understand, like, like just the simple fact, like you said uh, – I'm sorry, I forget her name, but like you said, all the Carissa? food, Carissa, yes, Carissa. Carissa, you said all food is organic until you put, until we put pesticides in it. Mm-hmm. Like, and that, I, you know, that's just an incredible way to put that because, you know, you, you're not going to see it until you see it, you know what I'm saying? And I think, uh, I just, I really think it's going to change a lot of things with our communities if we just get more people involved and get people out there and just continue to uh-huh. do the good work, you know. Kanoki, you want to jump in for the? Sure, I'll jump in. Um, so for me, what I see in the future is I see, uh, you know, I see just like what you see in, in different communities now. Um, here I'm in Sacramento. If I go down the street about maybe about two and a half miles, I run into a place called Little Saigon. Uh, within Little Saigon, they have all of the people that have come together from a specific culture, and they're all working together. They all have businesses together. I don't think that the type of activity that's going to be stimulated from agriculture is just going to remain the process of production of food. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to involve not just production of food, but then when you produce food, you're going to have to deliver food, and then you're going to have to cook the food. So mm-hmm. then now you have to get a restaurant, and then you have to start to, you know, train chefs, and then you have to train people to know about different things to make. You may have a vegan bakery. You may have a juice bar. So I think that through agriculture, it's going to um, explode into all types of different activities with, of course, agriculture as, as its you know, foundation. And then ultimately that's where the bloom is going to happen, and then the communities are going to come back alive. So that's what I see. I, I agree with both Walker and Canoke, and, and to speak – to the question is of can it feed the people? Um, just in my little short time of, of doing this work for the last four or five years, um, I've seen the movement grow and become more commonplace. And I think if we can get it to be less of a buzzword and more of just that's just what it is, you know, like this is my neighborhood farm, this is where I get my food, just as much as we know where our beauty supply store is that has the best combs and hair, like, you know, we can we can say, you know, this is where I go to get food. But then to, to Canoke's point on how it trickles out into other industries, I've even seen it trickling out within the industry of farming and how – 
you know, people started with just regular old, the easy to grow vegetables. Even in the, the land that I'm, I tend right now, it was started when I wasn't there. But the, the first things that they grew were collard greens and kale. One, because it was easy. Two, most importantly, because it was culturally appropriate. Um, and then now we're growing sunchokes and we're growing <laughs> and we grew pumpkins this year and we and we're starting to grow more specialty items. And I'm just a very small example, but there are people who are learning how to to grow within cities or within peri rural, peri suburban, however you um, identify with it in rural environments. Um, they're learning to grow the things that we import. So I went to a rice demonstration a couple weeks ago, and I was blown away. I said, oh, my goodness, like you have two acres of rice. And how, how many times do we eat rice in a week? You know, like that's a really commonplace food. And we're not we haven't seen to this point um, rice, wheat, um, millet, uh, cassava, like these big ticket items that people all like even the foodiest of local food crunchy people <laughs> still go to the grocery store to buy but if we can get to that point where we're actually growing those other things you know beans and the things that you will always get from the grocery store i'm seeing that happening and so it's both growing you know within the industry where the people who are doing it are learning more and we're becoming more expert at growing the food to feed the people people are buying into it more um and then industries are being created and enhanced by the the work that we're doing so i mean it's it's moving and it's and it's going to happen and and that's just uh, and that's just on the on the on the level of material and, and all that other type of stuff we haven't even gotten into the spiritual and the emotional uh, yeah, benefits yet. that would take a whole nother show all together we can do that <laughs> we can talk a bit about that too though i think that that is a big piece of it. i think that that there's a there is a spirituality, especially in, in, in with putting your hands in the earth. Oh, definitely. Right. Oh, yeah. Shameless plug. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in Baltimore. Uh, <laughs> you can- so we have a work day on Wednesday evenings called Agricultural Therapy Happy Hour. So it's like. It's our time. It's from 4.30 to 7. We've gone through the entire summer, and we're winding down right now, but it's exactly what you're speaking to, Kanoke, that there is a whole industry. Um, you can either call it horticultural therapy, or we call it agricultural therapy because it's it's mostly food. But, you know, the act of putting your hands in the soil, that 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 moment when your your fingers meet that cool earth and you're like wow okay this is not that bad this is cool you know and you're seeing the the self-esteem that that builds when you watch something grow and you have a small mm-hmm. hand in it because we're not doing that much we're putting the seeds in the ground and maybe we time the water and maybe we do like the ancestors do and yeah. say hey if it water if you know if it rains <laughs> it rains if it doesn't you know um but we don't do that much but just being out there and being around it, it's, uh, I mean, it will change your day in less than five minutes. <laughs> and so we invite people out every Wednesday, 430 to 7, <laughs> 4151 Park Heights Avenue. But <laughs> shameless plug aside, though, I, I completely agree with you, Kanoke. You know, uh, we are we are definitely better people for not only helping others, but just that direct access um, to the land. It changes you. So what, what have you seen in your neighborhood, Carissa, since you started this farm? Um, so yeah, it's it's been pretty fun watching the neighbors start to get their hands dirty and engage more. Um, and at people's grocery watching the residents become more invested in um the farm space. So we have a um a program that we run once a week at the People's Tree Garden where we um from three to five have a different workshop around different things whether it's raw, a raw food demo or a garden walk where a herbalist walks us through and teaches us about all the herbs. Um, so that's been really, really fun, um, watching residents step into that power. And at our house, you know, we have folks, so we've taken them to neighbors' houses to eat some of their weeds down. So that's been really fun just seeing, like, you know, a brother walking down the street, and he's like, hey, hey, time out. What you doing with the goats, man? <laughs> At, at, at People's Grocery, we have a weekly program where folks can do raw food demos. Um, they can they go through herbalist walks with the herbalists to walk through all of the herbs that we have on site. Um, and then at the farm, um, at, at, at Full Harvest, we had 
taking our ghosts to neighbors' house to do some trimming up there. Uh, we, mm-hmm. you know, right. folks in the neighborhood are like, "What you doing? Working down the street with ghosts?" So just <laughs> hearing the ghosts saying, you know, listening to the chicken when they're, you know, the sounds in the neighborhood are different. Folks mm-hmm. have commented on how it feels, you know, more like home, and then um, or more like the country. And then when I've had folks who visited from other countries, whether they be Latin countries, African countries, folks are like, damn, this feels like home. So mm. that's been really beautiful as well. And I think what you just described here is, you know, is, is, is the transformative power of what farmers can do in communities to change the nature of the community. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I think that we, 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 and we don't give enough credence to that. We're always looking for all these outside programs to come in and, and deal with the young brothers in the corner or whatever else mm-hmm. without mm-hmm. thinking about what this, the act of transforming community and controlling the land and rebuilding the houses and building uh, farms and growing food, what effect that has mm-hmm. on people's lives to bring community back. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's like recentering yourself, you know, in a lot of different ways um, because a lot of these, you know, the brothers and sisters out here, they, you know, the issues, and for my aspect of it, you know, the issues that plague the black community, a lot of times are psychological. And for me, when I was able to start farming, it was it calmed me down and it allowed me to look past myself in a lot of different ways. And I think a lot of times people, they can't even look past themselves. So, you know, just the, that transformative ability to center yourself and to really get to see what's actually happening. I think that's, yeah, that's like great transformal power that we, you know, are able to hold and and wield, you know, with with expertise. (laughs) I might might be waxing idealistic, but I really do believe that. I mean, I think that there's, the more I watch this, the more I see what could actually happen. It's like Mm -hmm. taking power Mm -hmm. from the the community out and not waiting for someone to come in and... Mm -hmm. And it's... It's just the whole idea of, uh, you know, switching from being a consumer to a producer. It just changes the way that you look at everything around you, mm-hmm. all your relationships. You know, you, you start to work from an empowered perspective when you think of designing a solution um, as opposed to maybe some other way and, you know, the negativity that can come along with it. So it, it does change you in many different ways. So I have another question may be a tad of a wrinkle, but I thought about this watching – a video of a group of young white kids who went into inner city Kansas and created this urban farm in a, in a community and doing some good work, doing mm-hmm. good work. But but one of the questions I had, um, and communities coming in and people taking parts of it and ownership and the rest, but one of the things that, 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 that struck me that, that has to do with the access to capital, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the access to the money to be able to expand and build, mm-hmm. to build – uh, hoop houses, greenhouses, to, mm-hmm. to take over buildings and remodel them to create urban fish farms or whatever else that, that you know, and other things of growth. Mm-hmm. And and that's always been, that's always been one of those things that has blocked young, old, black entrepreneurs, farmers from being able to kind of grow. Definitely. Because of access to capital. But how do you all, now, when you have this conference in California, Carissa, are you wrestling with all that, that, that particular issue? Yeah, and I know that I've come into this space with a lot of privilege. So I'm I'm biracial, um, and my mother is white and indigenous, and she has she was able to secure loans from some of her friends who had access to capital in order to help us purchase the land that we operate on. So I know that that's a real challenge. Um, and one of the things that we've done is knock down our um, fences between us and my sister who lives next door to try and show, you know, even if one of us only has a little plot, what what can be possible if we start to work together in a more intentional way. Mm-hmm. I think that's really important and thinking about how do we share resources. So, for instance, there's a community truck that a lot of folks get to have access to um, that we all support gas and stuff like that that allows us to have more resources. Um, so I think that's a really important question that we need to be wrestling with. I also think that we need to start taking land. Um, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of land that's owned by city governments that's not doing anything that's public land, and I believe that public land should be used for public good. 
So I think that we should just start taking land and start farming on it um, because our lives depend on it. Yeah. I mean, I I guess I could speak to the capital because I was very lucky and very blessed to actually uh, been able to enter in the, the growing green competition and, and win the $63,000 that's going to be started yeah, that's, off farm. That's phenomenal. Yeah, because yeah, if I didn't have that money, there's, you know, I was just going to do it. You know what I'm saying? I was going to figure out a way and I was going to, you know, just struggle and try to, you know, I mean, I'm still struggling right now, but, you know, I was going to figure out a way. But, you know, um, trying to get in contact with opportunities because there are opportunities out here. You know, you just have to be in contact with the right people. But, you know, it's, a lot of times it's hard to even get in contact with the right people. So, but yeah, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like we need to more come together as a community more and, and really work with what we already have and just like, like, look, I'm about to be farming right here. I don't really, you're not doing nothing with it. Mm-hmm. So guess what? We got some plants here now. This crowdfunding thing is really, has been really powerful and folks that I've seen trying to do things, it's been helpful, but then also with crowdfunding, you either have to have a bomb pitch (laughs) or you have to know people um, to buy into it. So I think we're still trying to figure out, um, you know, how to fund things. Just, you know, me and talking with my friends, aside from my work, you know, if if we want to start an operation of our own, what would we do? How would we do it? and, you know, we have even gone as, well, each of us will put up $40, and now we have this, you yeah. know? So so it's possible within the community, but access to capital is definitely has been a hindrance. But then one thing that we must, um, I, I think a lot of times, impoverished people, you know, whether we are impoverished through money or just through, you know, understanding of self, that we can't see the forest for the trees, you know? So... While you may not have the the cash capital, you know someone who can do something. You know, mm-hmm. like at this point in time, we all have student loans, but a lot of us have been to college. So you know, so you know, just in the in the the people that I know, you know, you have a landscape architect, you have a bio major, you have a so we have you know we have capital. It may not be financial capital right now, um, but there are a lot of resources just kind of circulating in this place in history amongst all these people who are talking about it. And I've seen, I am seeing some really great things happening. You can do so much with understanding of Photoshop and mm-hmm. uh, Instagram, Twitter, and, you know, a little backyard space if you want to grow food. And that goes for any other industry, too. So before we run out of time, Kanoka, I'm going to come back to you. Just said We talked about capital and other things, and I know that part of your idea is expanding Sacramento and farming in Sacramento. So what's your notion about that? Maybe just some final uh-huh. thoughts, Molly, about where you think this is going to go. Well, um, I, just, I guess what I was um, saying before is that we were just talking about the whole economical field. Um, of course, ourselves, we were blessed to be able to uh, purchase the land that we have. Um, but I think that there's going to be um, a real push for um, access to capital. But then, at the same time, policy changes that have to have to go into place in order to make it feasible for people to even want to get property to use it for agriculture. And I think two of those things um, we've started or we've um, worked on in Sacramento are um, and Sacramento Urban Ag Ordinance, which does make it legal to be able to grow food and then sell it. And then at the same time, another one, which is called the Urban Ag Incentive Zones. So what that says is that if you have land um, that's sitting empty and you want to let somebody use it for agriculture or if it's your own land, use it for agriculture for five years, then you get a pretty, pretty good tax break over that period of time. And so then that becomes you know, an incentive for somebody to go to somebody that may own land in a neighborhood or in general and say, hey, let me use this land, you'll get a tax break, and then through that you'll get food and we'll be able to also feed others in the community as well. But I think there's a, you know, with the, the practical parts of it, we then also have to look at the policy changes that will make it easier to operate in the urban environment. There's so much more to talk about, which we will. Um, and uh, I'm going to thank everybody for being with us. Uh, Kanoki Israel, who just heard uh, from Sacramento, California, founder with his wife Judith of the Israel Family Urban Farm and a founding member of the Sanko Food Buying Club, advocate for expansion of urban farming in Sacramento. Thank you so much for being with us today from Sacramento. Um, and Carissa Lewis, black radical farmer from Oakland, California, co-founder of the Full Harvest Urban Farm uh, in East Oakland, manager at People's Groceries, a food justice community organization based in West Oakland, and active member of the uh, black, uh, Bay, uh, Bay Area Black Lives Matter chapter and the Black Hawk Collective. 
Uh, and here in Baltimore, we've been with Sasha Jones, who is food justice consultant for the Park Heights Community Health Alliance and also manages the Afia Community Teaching Garden in Park Heights here in Baltimore. And Walker Marsh, founder and owner of Flower Factory, a local flower farm in Baltimore City. Uh, and thank you all so much for what you do, putting your hands in the earth, bringing new energy to our communities, and making this work. And I thank you so much for joining us for this part of the Sound Bites here on the Mark Steiner Show. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. To learn more about them and the work of the Black Urban Growers, visit blackurbangrowers.org. We have to take a short break. When we return, we'll have a preview of a benefit coming up later this month for the health of the Gunpowder River. Its streams and its wetlands, so don't go away. Jazz and our land come together. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is Mark Steiner, and you're listening to Sound Bites, our weekly look at food, agriculture, and our future here on The Mark Steiner Show, produced out of your source for cool jazz and more. WEAA 88.9 FM, the voice of the community, and also broadcast on Del Marva Public Radio, WSDL 90.7. On October the 22nd, there'll be a benefit for the Gunpowder River, its dreams and its wetlands called Jazz for Water, which will feature farm-to-food table food, and a performance by jazz guitarist Carl Filippiak and his quartet. To talk more about that event and the importance of protecting our Gunpowder River, I'm joined by Theo Lagarder, who is the Gunpowder Riverkeeper, Carl Filippiak, the jazz guitarist who will be performing jazz standards and original songs for Jazz for Water with his quartet, and playing drums in that quartet is our own Robert Shahid, who's also with us. So welcome, gentlemen. Good to have you with us. Welcome. Very good to be with you, Mark. Great to be here. Thank you, Mark. It's going to be a good night. So, Theo, you started all this, so why don't you tell us what's happening? You start. Well, thank, thank you. Jazz for Water uh, is a fundraiser celebrating the work of protecting the river we drink. And in talking to Carl, uh, I thought that it'd be nice to get uh, the quartet over at Oregon Ridge Park uh, to help us raise some money. You know, you can't say jazz without thinking improvisation, but... I know you can't say nonprofit without thinking fundraisers. So we wanted this to be uh, an event that was no speeches, no uh, awards, just a real good time so people could come in and dig the music and eat some great local food and take part in uh, a celebration of the work that we do to make sure that the river is safe and, and healthy for all. So I'm going to come back to the river here for a minute, but 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 uh, Carl, I mean, I— you, you've been playing for a long time. Yes. A uh, long time. Very long time. <laughs> Should we emphasize that some more? No, I'm just kidding. So we, <laughs> but, and, and doing some great work. And, and so, talk. I, I just like to get both from you and Robert Shahid just a bit about your approach to this music. Your, your, I mean, you've been playing guitar. I think one of the great jazz guitarists around. For the listeners who maybe have not heard you yet, um, give us a little sense of who you are and what your music is. Well, I've been around a long time. I've loved uh, music since, you know, uh, I heard the Beatles in the 60s and uh, have become, uh, within a year or two of that, a, a huge jazz fan as well as blues. So all those elements are in my music. And uh, probably in the past year or two of meeting, um, you know, Robert, we uh, decided to put together a group that focuses on the, uh, you know, the more traditional or the more jazz side of things. And uh, that's why we're, we're working together you know, currently, and I, and I love the band. It's a great band, and we play some acoustic jazz. And uh, the event with uh, Theo just sounded like a perfect fit, to be honest. And that's why I'm there. And I'm also a great friend of Theo's, and um, I'm into the cause. And so I, I hope that helps out a little bit. No, it does, man. It does a whole lot. Um, and, and 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 Robert, I mean, you you've been playing drums for a while yourself. I mean, so and this this the, the, talk a bit about teaming up with Carl here. Well, I'll tell you what, it's a privilege to team up with Carl. I, don't, I know Carl's a very modest guitarist. He's known throughout the world. I know he wouldn't share with you that he just got back from England playing in the very same studio that the Beatles re- recorded all their tunes with. Wow. So, so Carl's an international artist. And uh, to be able to, to perform with Carl, you know, there's a lot of good guitarists, but Carl's also a good human being. So all that just ties in with the purpose of this event, and I think it's, it's a privilege. And did I mention that he just got back from England? No. Where did he just get back from? I just got back from England. I recorded <laughs> at Abbey Road Studios, and it was, it was uh, in the words of Chris Farley, it was awesome. 
It must it have been. really incredible. If ever me a dream come true. And Robert, all those kind things you said, I don't know, I, I hear a raise coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I <laughs> and I love no, you but, too, Robert. You know how much I love your playing. And the same thing goes back. A great, great player and a great human being. And that's really what I've found where this journey of music has gotten me with just great. It's really, a, it, the music is awesome, but it's really about the vibe and the friendship and the people. So I uh, hope I can, I'm stressing that enough. I can't yeah, yeah. stress that enough. And I think for all those listeners who haven't had a chance to experience Carl Philippiak playing, it really is a beautiful, beautiful event to participate in. The warmth, the it's not just a technical display of awesome guitar playing. He's certainly capable of that, of that. But it's the beauty of the music that comes forth to the people that I think everybody would really enjoy. And I think it really does tie in with, uh, with the Holy Ghost. So, Theo, talk a bit about what, what, what uh, folks who you've been on the show before, but many people don't know or understand what you as Gunpowder Riverkeeper do and the state of the gunpowder and the things you've been working on. Sure. Well, Mark, you know, I'm talking about jazz and, and a four-part harmony. You know, we, we hit it four different ways at Gunpowder Riverkeeper. The first is advocacy. We're really making people aware of how special the area is that provides drinking water for 1.8 million people in the Baltimore metro area. We do a lot of mapping and monitoring so we can visualize where the pollutant sources are, and we do a lot of legal research to make sure that the river's protected, and it's, it's protected in a respectful way, so it's shared. But, you know, what I like to do any given day is, if asked, I'd love to get more kids, more people up to the river so they can see where the drinking water comes from. You know, the gunpowder is just a beautiful uh, river that touches a lot of people in Carroll County, Harford County, all the way into Baltimore County down to Joppa Town. So it's 53 miles long. It has 217 miles of tributaries. And it seems to be a great secret. You know, not many people really get up and, and take a look at it, but we all benefit by using it in our daily lives, opening the tap each morning. So that's the kind of work we do. And, uh, you know, we can't do it without the support of the community. So I'm so glad we're able to get these guys together for this evening, and I'm really looking forward to it. So, also, I just want to give people a sense of the things you've also been fighting for. You helped address the issues of the gas pipeline going across sensitive areas. Uh, you've been kind of standing up to keep the river healthy, which has been a struggle sometimes between development and what happens in that river. Um, and so this, I mean, it's not like you're just walking down the river trying to show people how beautiful it is. I mean, it's a serious job to keep this place safe for all of us. That's right. Yeah, that, thank you, and, and that's right. I mean, we, we have the support of the community, people that live and work and recreate along the river, but I couldn't do it without others. We've, we've realized about a half a million dollars in free legal support in the past four years in attacking, you know, pollutant problems and weak permits and the like, and we're really uh, interested in making sure the river stays uh, healthy and that drinking water is protected. We're doing all of that, you know, on a shoestring. And to have an event like this with, with Carl and Robert and Jeff, it's really going to be uh, fantastic. And uh, I just hope people can come out and check out the music and, you know, enjoy the evening. The music is going to be great. And, and, Carl, you said that you had a common interest here, that you're doing this partially because of your support for the, the kind of work the Gunpowder does, the Gunpowder Riverkeeper does. Yes, um, Theo's a great friend, and I've, I've learned a lot about what he does. Um, as, but we actually met because he's one of my guitar students. So that's another beautiful ah. thing about teaching. I've met so many great people. So, you know, along the line, you become friends with, with actually great friends with, with many people. And, um, and I've also been, been privy to some of the, uh, the moments, and let's just say I've, I've, I've seen some moments where Theo, I can tell how much he's been working. I'll let it go at that. And I, re I respect what he does immensely, and I know how tough it is. Um, yeah, so I, I definitely I'm uh, into what he's into, and I want to support it in any way I can. It's, Once again, that's why I'm here. I mean, I think that's one of the, thing, one of the things people don't realize about the gunpowder, which you alluded to in the beginning here, Theo, is, is that where we're sitting here right now at WEA, Morgan State University in Baltimore City, um, water that everybody who lives around here, what they open with their taps is because of the gunpowder. 
Right, and, and that was some good work back in the 30s under the Works Progress Administration that got people back to work after the Depression. They were looking forward to make sure that they had an adequate supply for the city's future needs. So uh, it is water is something that touches all of us, you know, in, in the listening area. I think that jazz is also something that, yes. that a lot of uh, the WEA fans really get, especially with Robert Shaheed's show. I did that in the morning, and it's just something that keeps giving back. You know, we talk about improvisation with jazz, and, and one thing that happens with environmental problems is they just pop up. So, you know, as a, as a nonprofit director, sometimes we're composing on the spot. Sometimes we really just have to dig in and make sure that we have a good background and that we're really tied to the resource so that we can advocate for it. But we're never uh, playing alone. We always want to draw people in so we have this intergenerational aspect of how the river's been used, you know, in history. If grandparents used to swim in the river and their grandchildren now are getting sick, you know, we want to hear about it. That, that's, the kind, that's the kind of thing that keeps us going. So, so uh, it's... Without, without having that kind of perspective, you know, we can't, we can't do it. So let's, let's tell folks where to go. The event is, is going to be at the Sequoia Room at Oregon Ridge Park. That's uh, 13401 Beaver Dam Road in Cockeysville, Maryland, 21030. And we have tickets on sale right now at eventbrite.com under Jazz for Water. And so this can be a great event. We're going to be there uh, just enjoying Carl Flippiak, which will be hearing his music in a moment, coming under us as we go out, and the great Robert Shaheed on drums. Um, and it, them together, is just, that's enough to see, and it's going to be just a great evening, really good jazz, some of the best you hear anywhere in the world. And uh, so I want to thank Carl Flippiak, uh, Robert Shaheed for being here, because you know that name every morning, and Theo Lagarder, Gunpowder River Keeper, who does amazing work uh, to save our water uh, and to keep things flowing. And, gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you, thank Mark. You, Thanks a lot. So thank you, Theo, Carl, and Robert, for joining us. You can find more information about tickets and jazz for water at is.gd slash jazz for water. That's is.gd slash jazz for water. The Mark Steiner Show and Sound Bites are productions of the Center for Emerging Media and made possible in part by a grant from the Town Creek Foundation. Our producers are Stephanie Mavronis and Mark Gunnery. Our engineer is Andre Melton. Our engineer at Delmarva Public Radio is Christopher Rank. Our interns are Sienna Greaves, Manifa Wilson, and Calvin Perry. Our theme music is by Wal Matthews of Clean Cuts. Send me your thoughts about today's show to talk at steinershow.org. To podcast the Mark Steiner Show, share it with your friends, visit us on the web at steinershow.org, or listen to us via your favorite podcasting app. You can also learn more about Soundbites and listen to past episodes at soundbitesradio.org. And for your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA 88.9 FM, The Voice of the Community, and WSTL 90.7 FM, Delmarva Public Radio, I'm Mark Steiner. Thank you.